turn in your copy of the scriptures to Mark 5. This account is in Matthew's gospel, it's in Luke's gospel, and it's obviously Mark's gospel. But Mark, actually unusually for Mark, because Mark is the pacier of the gospels, the more rapid there is this constant repeated word, immediately, immediately, gaining momentum. But interestingly, Mark breaks tradition here, or, or his habit here, and actually includes more detail of this event than any of the other Gospels. And as I've studied it, um, I desperately was praying, Lord, help me to take the whole. But um, I'm splitting it in two. There's just too much here. There's too much here. And I don't believe we honour the word of God by just passing over things. We need to... Every word is inspired. Jesus extended the inspiration down to the punctuation of the Hebrew, the vowel pointings, etc., etc. So we would be right, I believe, to consider the details. So we're just going to look at verse 1 to 8 this morning. And I guess this morning is, in some respects, you would say more negative, And next time will be more positive. Though we are ending on Christ in a high, the, the third point. Um, but I want us to actually be sobered this morning you know i know some people don't come to church to be sobered but we need to be we need to be sobered by the presence of evil we are not to be obsessed with evil but the great danger as i'm going to say is to be forgetful of evil because if we don't know our enemy we won't prepare for battle um so that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning so we'll read verses one through to eight of chapter five then they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gadarenes. And when they had come out of the boat, there is his word, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he, that is Jesus, said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. We'll read to verse 9. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion. For we are many. Let's pray once more. Father, we do pray that the reality that we have in front of us would not be merely words on a page or stories. We would see the very real spiritual reality described here. Uh, that we would flee to you and, and flee to Christ and walk closely with him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a book written by John Wilkinson called Quakerism Examined said, One of the chief artifices of Satan is to induce men to believe that Satan does not exist. Another perhaps equal fatal work is to make them fancy that he is obliged to stand quietly by. Or along other similar lines, Pastor William Ramsey in 1865 in a work called Spiritualism, a satanic delusion and sign of the times put it as follows. One of the most striking proofs of the personal existence of Satan, which our time affords us, is found in the fact that he has so influenced the minds of multitudes in reference to his existence and doings as to make them believe that he does not exist and that the hosts of demons or evil spirits over whom Satan presides as prince are only the fantasies of the brain some hallucination of the mind. Could we have any stronger proof of the existence of a mind so mighty as to produce such results in men and in women? It seems that Western nations are entering into a dark ages. We are, if you like, so naive and so blind to spiritual reality that we could end up as nations and as cultures so ignorant of the power of Satan that we may become as ignorant as the nations before Christ came. In Acts chapter 14 and in verse 15 and 16, Paul describes the conditions of the Gentile peoples before Christ came into the world as being one of absolute ignorance concerning the fact that they worship demons. In Acts 14 verse 15 and 16 we read, Verse 16, in bygone generations, God allowed all nations to walk 
in their own ways. And if you were to cross-reference that with other texts in Corinthians about the worship of idols being really the worship of demons, what you have there is the nations were worshipping and living according to their own religions and practices and cults and groups, but in the process they were actually under satanic sway and influence. They thought they were doing good when they sacrificed their children to Moloch and to Baal. When the truth is, little did they know that they were actually feeding the Satan, the satanic beast. And, and, and we are in danger now of, as we move further away from our Judeo-Christian view of suppressing all presence of the supernatural. But really, you can't suppress it. It is very much alive and at work, and we don't realize it. And you say, but we're Christians. I know, but we breathe the air of culture. The reason why Romans 12 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, do not be conformed to this world, is because the Christians are constantly at danger of beginning to drink the, the, the atmosphere in of unbelievers, and we can become as dull and as, as blind to the very real presence of evil permeating our institutions, permeating our schools, permeating our hospitals, permeating everything around us. And so we need a realism. Now, this feeds in then to why is it that there was so much demon possession in Christ's life and ministry? Because I would propose to you what is called demon possession today is not biblical demon possession. I am not going to go so far as to say it doesn't occur, but I don't believe a single one of you have seen demon possession in this form. Have any of you seen someone so unrestrainable any time that he has to be bound with the mightiest chains that the iron forger can produce and given a supernatural strength to literally snap loose iron. This is unique. This is something that you and I don't meet even when we go into the darkest streets of Eastbourne on a Friday night. The demon possession at Christ's time was frequent, Regular, wherever he went to a town, he often confronted men and women who were possessed by demons. And herein lies the difference between what you see in the Gospels and what we see today. What you see in the Gospels is Satan and his evil hosts of hell exerting a power not just merely over the minds and the hearts of men and women, but over the bodies of men and women. Therein lies the difference we, as I'm going to make the whole point, the whole point of this sermon is not to overlook the work of demons in our society, but I'm trying to draw a distinction. What we see in men and women's lives is definitely the very real impact and consequence of Satan, who is a murderer from the beginning, seeking to deceive, distort, enslave the mind. And indeed, sometimes that enslavement, which occurs in people's minds and hearts, is so intense and so serious that it causes even bodily functions but I would propose to you that very few of us I'm not saying it can't be seen have seen demon possession in this way so why is it then that you see at the coming of Christ what we might call an intensification and Satan's always at work in the nations but this intensification of Satan and his demons literally taking over the bodies of people so that they have no will at all to do anything but what the demons will. Well, it's this. Because for so long the nations were allowed to live in darkness, and indeed even much of Judea, when light comes into darkness, when the light of the world breaks into satanic strongholds, what you have, Satan isn't just going to allow that to happen. You think of the Japanese. I have nothing against Japanese people. I'm, not, I'm just saying, isn't it true, when we've seen the footage of World War II, that the Japanese would rather die than surrender? So committed were they to their emperor and to the honour of being a Japanese soldier, they would never, ever, ever back down. And we've even recently, in recent history, found an island where there have been some old Japanese soldiers still thinking the war is on. 
And that is a picture of Satan and his demons. I'm not by suggesting anything worse about the Japanese people. Just their behavior at that particular point illustrates something of the resolve of demonic powers. They will never bow down to Jesus, though they know they can't win. So much do they hate holiness. So much do they hate Christ. So committed are they to the destruction of everything that God has said is good and holy that they will not yield an inch. And so when Christ comes, you might be thinking, but they know they can't win. And we see that in the text. They say, do not torment us. And in Luke's gospel, it says, before the time. They understand that the, the writing is on the wall concerning their future. But here's the point. They would rather go to hell than repent. And so what you see here is the last hurrah, if you like, of demonic powers when light comes into a stronghold that they have established headquarters, exerting everything they have to try and undermine the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what you have then in this account is demon possession in its biblical form, a possession of body and soul. But the point I want to stress is what you see illustrated in this physical possession of this man is what is true spiritually in the souls of every man and woman by nature. It was true of you before you were a Christian. But here's the sobering thing for you, believer. Though you have been set free, and though no one can snatch you from Christ's hand, because of the, like the Japanese soldiers who would rather fight and fight and fight, though they know they can't win, Satan isn't just going to let you be Christ's. The same power that once had you, and the same power exerted over this man, will still continue to, 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 to chase you at your heels. Every single day of your believing life. And you need to realise that. Because if we, like Christ, are going to shine the light, if we're going to try and shine the light in Eastbourne, to be that city on a hill, not hide our light under a bushel, if we are to, to go about the Great Commission, I can assure you, because of the very nature of evil itself, and evil cannot repent because it will not repent, they will not stand by And as surely as Jesus and his men arrived at the other side and had this great collision between light and darkness. You think when we make progress as a church, you think when we make small steps forward in the gospel, slight decisions just to move forward in a more biblical way, you think that we're just going to, it's just going to all go plain sailing? Wrong. That's why I pray that you would have a righteous realism this morning. That you would be amazed at the power of devils but in awe of the power of Christ over the devils. Because actually, the greater you realise the power of darkness, the greater you will esteem the power of Christ. By playing down evil, we diminish Christ's work and his power and his authority. Well, firstly then, the first point is actually, if we give you a bit of breathing space after that intense introduction, because it's in the text, And it's an encouragement before we get to some very intense stuff. The first point is a view of fulfilled promise. A view of fulfilled promise. I nearly cut this out, but I thought it would do good just to see this because it's a lovely point. Then they came to the other side. Pause there. Verse 1. Let's not miss this tremendous encouragement. Jesus began the day before saying, let us go to the other side and you were with me weren't you and we were in that storm with them and these these men some of them are fishermen Rosanna made a lovely point she, I wish I wish, wish you told me this before we had this chat before because one of those things that made it would have made the point even stronger she made you kept talking about they hear a fisherman having meltdown she's like they weren't all fishermen <laughs> yeah wonder what the tax collector felt like in this storm I mean, it must have been even more petrifying if the fishermen are petrified. They, they were absolutely having a meltdown. They felt that, that they were done for. You felt like that, what it is to be in a crushing place, life too much. I can't do it. can't go on. These, the waves of providence and circumstances are bearing in on me. I made this point when I preached this passage a few years back from Luke. It's not a point that I would die on, but I just wonder... Is there a sense in which we could be right to make a righteous inference that possibly the storm was whipped up by Satan himself? We, we know that Job, that, that, that he was given power over the winds. 
and to test, to test Job. And in this great cosmic struggle between God and Satan, Job was caught in the middle. And God was saying, he won't deny me. He won't curse me. Yes, he will. You take away all these things. And so this storm was whipped up in Job's life. And I wonder, this storm was coming to prevent Christ from getting to the other side, to prevent the disciples from getting to the other side, to cause this absolute panic and meltdown. But Jesus said, let us get to the other side. They came to the other side. I think Mark wants us to note that, to see that. You see, Jesus was being pressed forward by the will of God. If he says, we're going to the other side, it's because I must be about my father's business. The father has told him to go to the other side. He lived in perfect harmony with God. But this storm came of epic proportions. And yet, it was not enough to derail the will of God. It was not enough to stop Christ ensuring his people safely arrived where he said they would be. And I want to say to you, beloved Christian, whatever you are in your life, God's will for your life cannot be thwarted. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in you than even the powers of nature. Nothing under heaven, not even nature, not any created thing, can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And this doesn't mean you won't panic. This doesn't mean you won't panic. You, you see that in the disciples. They panicked. We will have our meltdowns. We will have our times when everything feels too much. But you will make it to the other side. If you are the Lord, you will make it to the other side. The one who allows the storms controls the storms and will see you through the storms. Are you in a storm this morning, Christian? Have you followed him? Fear not. The Lord will bring you through. He who called you his faithful he will surely do it. Let that comfort you. But that's your breathing space over. Because they came to the other side. And sometimes when we surf one trial, we surf one storm, you just think, surely I'm allowed a bit of calm and quiet now. You know, just, just a time, just to sit and enjoy things, enjoy life. But they go from one terrifying sight to another terrifying sight. Immediately it says... They may not have even gone out the boat. They have just been through hell at the seas. Believing that they were perishing, scared to the bone. And now they see this man who is possessed by a legion. A legion was up to 6,000 Roman soldiers, beloved. Now, I don't know where to infer from that. It was a literal 6,000. But the point seems to be... These 12 men and the saviour and the other boats that came with them were presuming got the other side as well. They encountered a whole army in the, concentrated in this one man. And the sight they must have seen, he was dirty, we're going to look at that, he was cutting himself, he was, he was a mess. We need then, secondly, to see a picture of human wretchedness. We don't do justice to the truth and honour God of truth by playing down how frightening this image is that they saw. This is an image of extreme wretchedness that you and I could not even imagine. But the reason why it is so important that we are willing to look at it is because what you get to see embodied in this man's body is what is going on in every soul on your streets. You see, we can't see the invisible. We can't see the battle in the hearts. We can't see the satanic work going on in the minds of people. But what we get in this gospel, what you see in biblical demon possession, is a visible demonstration of what is going on in our culture spiritually all the time. And what is actually attacking us every day. The truth has to be faced in order to know what to do. Um, the Holocaust... How many people, even today, but how many people denied the Holocaust? How many people, even when Churchill was suggesting that Hitler might be capable of doing these kinds of things, just said, no, that's too extreme. Now maybe you've seen some of the black and white footage of the soldiers liberating Auschwitz. And the tears in their eyes. 
as they saw wretchedness, wretchedness like you can't even imagine. And then they hear the stories of what they've been through and where the bones of their wife and their children are. But you see, how important is it that successive generations, how important was it that my secondary school took me to Auschwitz? I remember very well my friends mucking around and laughing and joking until they saw the skulls in a row. Then they calmed down. Then they realised this was real, this happened. How important it is, because when we don't face up to reality, we become naive to reality and therein lies the great danger. You allow these kind of things to happen again. Here is a picture of wretchedness that we must face. We must think about. We must pause on. Because Mark goes to great detail to describe things to us and we do not do justice to the word of God by skimming it. Every detail, him cutting himself, him breaking the chains, him crying, him living among the tombs. Mark wants you to think about the implications for each of these things. Now note where they came to. It says they came to the gatherings. Be quick at this point. But here you have a satanic beachhead. Here you have a satanic stronghold. This was the east side of the Jordan, of sorry, the Sea of Galilee. And these cities in the northern Israel were regarded by believers in southern Judah as being apostate. Not watering down the language. These were what you would call Hellenized Jews. If you were a Hellenist, it means you embrace the Greek way of living, the Greek language, the Greek culture, the Greek custom, and even Greek worship. And you just adapt your Judaism for... you. you you, you conform your Judaism to suit a Greek Hellenistic culture. And so this is where Jesus came to. He came to a people who ethnically and biologically should have been living separate and holy lives unto the God of Abraham. And yet here were a people who were so unclean that they were keeping pigs and making profit from them. I'm sure you may know that pigs were forbidden to a Jew. The, the very fact they were keeping pigs in their numbers described demonstrates to you the spiritual condition of these people. Here are a people then who have become morally, according to the ceremonial law, morally unclean. But of course that ceremonial uncleanness about not eating certain foods, not, it was all about communicating the need for a clean heart. But their disregard of these things demonstrated it to be a place where Satan was very active. Because Satan is an unclean creature. Satan is the most vile, despicable, evil, sinister, filthy creature under heaven. And where you find a culture of uncleanness, there you find Satan. There you find hell on earth. This was a place of sin, a stronghold of Satan. Satan has set up camp in here. Camp here. He has fortified this place. And he is priding himself on ruining a people made to be holy unto God. And straight away then we have an application. I would propose to you, Satan and his evil forces are most strong and must be seen to be most strong. Not where the gospel's never gone, though he's there. But in lands and nations where the gospel has been. And churches have been turned into nightclubs. You, a land like ours, what I'm trying to stress to you, this was a place where Jewish people lived. This was the promised land. This was the inheritance of God. They were to live in such a way as to be a witness to the God of the universe, to compel the nations to seek God through their distinctive lifestyles. And yet they have been desecrated. They have been made unclean and unholy. And there you see, that is where a legion of demons are. They are in a place which was once called holy, and have made it unholy. Because Satan has one mission to attack every holy thing. That is how his rebellion in heaven started. You can read about his fall in rebellion in Revelation chapter 12. And we're told that his time on the earth is short. But he's now persecuting the woman, the church. Seeking to devour her. What I want you to see is however small and insignificant we might feel our little gathering to be. Satan hates this venue, this place, and the people of this place more than anything else on this street. Do you feel under attack this morning? 
I won't spare you the I won't tell you the details because it's personal, but the the attack I've had in leading up to this sermon, I can't even describe it to you. Satan is real, beloved. Satan is very real. He hates what is holy. He hates any movement towards what is holy. You might only feel all I did was to one little step towards God and holiness. He sees it and he says to his legions, get over there. We have no idea then the power of work in England, in Eastbourne. This is a place littered with churches, church buildings. And you might say, but we don't see, you know, we're not in the middle of a war. We don't see, you know, people are fairly nice. Our neighbours are fairly nice. Exactly. People aren't holy. People aren't seeking God. People aren't worshipping God. The Pharisees. The Pharisees were the most morally outward people of his day. And yet in John 8, Jesus said to them, what did he say? You, your father, is the devil. For his desires you do. Religious people. There are so many churches where I would argue Satan may be more prevalent than even in the nightclub. I'm not saying it's an evil or, but I'm saying in terms of where he concentrates his energies and his efforts, it will be at the bride of Christ. It will be at every institution, every organisation, every body of people who say Jesus is Lord. That is where they are. They may have known and may have received warning that Jesus was coming to a stronghold, hence the storm perhaps, to slow him down. Because they understand that Christ's coming means their time is short. And so they intensify their activity. Now here they're called, in the singular, in verse 2, an unclean spirit. But we know from verse 9 they were many. In Luke 7.21 they're called evil spirits. They're just pure evil. Demons are pure evil. They don't have a desire or one instinct towards that which is good. Paul describes them in Ephesians 6 verse 12 as spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. They can only will evil. They love unrighteousness. They delight in lies. They hate what is pure and holy. And here we see such a man. Just think of it. One man. One man. With a legion. That's how evil they are. They're so evil. So cruel. So mean, so sinister, that they would seek to spend their time just attacking one soul. I heard a story once, it's a true story, Salvation Army group that used to go out on Sunday mornings and open air preach before the service. And some of the youngsters began to question the older generation and say, why are we doing this? What's the point, you know, if um, you know, no one's believed thus far? And the, uh, the leader of the, the work said, if one soul is saved, it's all worth it. Every year, every week, it's all worth it. Because you see, the devils know that. The devils know the preciousness of a never-dying soul. And they are willing to exert the full artillery of hell itself on one man. Do we have a love for souls? that corresponds to Satan's hatred for souls. There's a challenge. And see what these demons are doing to him. Now let's look at what they're doing to him. They are, firstly, they're demonizing, they're, de- sorry, they're dehumanizing him. He, he's a wild man. He has uh, been bound, verse 4, with shackles and chains. The chains have been pulled, pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. He is literally like a wild dog on a lead. And the best efforts of men can do nothing. So out of control, so wild, so untamable, he has to be chained. This is an image bearer of God. This is someone God made who who has a rational mind and is capable of thinking and loving and creating and purpose and meaning, behaving like a wild beast. 
Some of you may remember the Toronto Blessing, or so-called, in 1994-1995. I was a mere boy at that time, and I can't remember much from that time in my life, but I can remember the Toronto Blessing and seeing an elder's wife walking on the floors, barking like a dog, in church, calling God holy at the same time. There was devils and demons in my midst. I sent a video recently. Um, we're seeing now the logical progression of I'm a boy but I can be a girl, I'm a girl but I can be a boy. We are now, I was sent a video recently this week of some young girls with chains around their neck barking and pretending to be dogs at school. This is real. And what I'm trying to say to you is don't just see someone who's mentally unwell. That's what secularism would have you believe because they don't believe in the supernatural. Everything is explained in their minds, by physical solutions. Chuck some pills at them. No, my beloved, when you see behaviour like that, you are very witnessing the real work of evil spirits. And you won't hear that anywhere else but a pulpit where the Bible's preached. But that is the truth. And we need to wake up. Because our battle is, is not against flesh and blood. When we start seeing men and women behave like beasts and animals in the nightclubs, behaving like mammals do on the Discovery Channel, Behold the work of demons in our midst. Here is a man then uncivilised, quite literally, not fit for society. So they were dehumanising him, but they were also destroying him. See a man here, a hurting man. Verse 5. Night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out, literally shrieking out. What was he saying? Help! I don't know, what was he crying Cutting himself with stones. Satan is a murderer and a destroyer. I want to be sensitive here because it's complicated sometimes. Are there any in here that self-harm? I can't, you know, the way you present yourself on a Sunday, I can't assume anything. People can be very, I've learned this through painful experience, people can be very, can cover up self-harm. I want you to see the tempter to, who tempts you to do that. Satan hates you. He hates your body because your body is made in the image of God as much as your soul. And he loves to harm you. And we are seeing, aren't we, in our culture a rise in self-harm. Particularly among our children and young people. This is an extreme form. The man was in, not in control. Much self-harm today is done with the full compliance of the individual, that's where there's a slight difference, but there's no less a true power at work today. We are a culture characterised by misery, depression, suicide. That is a culture, according to Mark 5, where the demons are at work. We are living in a day of self-harm. In fact, we seem to be addicted to self-harm. Do you see the relevance of God's word? You see, it's possible, isn't it, just to read this as something that happened in history, as a physical extreme manifestation that none of us see. But these things have been preserved to teach us, to instruct us, to remove the veil of things we wouldn't see otherwise. We get to see in full colour what normally we cannot see because the spirits and demons are invisible. Thirdly, they were contaminating him. So they were dehumanising him, they were destroying him, they were contaminating him. He lived... In the mountaintops, he lived in the tombs. Now you know if Jewish people under the Jewish law, according to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, if they had contact with dead bodies, that meant they were unclean and were not allowed to be restored to society, let alone to the temple. And they had to go through various cleansing, purification rituals to be restored back. Can you think of anything more vile than living among tombs? living among the abode of the dead, separated from the joy and the laughter of mealtimes, feasting, fellowship, shrieking with the dead. That was where this man was, contaminated, defiled, made dirty. Fourthly, they were undignifying him, or you might say dehumanising him. Luke provides us a detail that's not in Mark, though Mark has the most detail. Luke tells us he also wore no clothes. He was entirely 
naked, stripped of all dignity, shamefully exposed. But worst of all, this man had no freedom, did he? He was a slave. He was being controlled. The power that was at work in his life and in his body and in his mind was more than any help that was in man could solve. Chains had been forged, but nothing was good enough to restrain this man. And so we bring this all together then. What a picture of human wretchedness. What a glimpse into the extent of satanic influence over the hearts of men. Let me repeat. What is true of bodily demon possession is true of spiritual demon possession. The whole world, 1 John 5, is said, lies under the sway of the evil one. Or Ephesians 2, you who have been saved by grace, you were once led by the prince of the power of the air. This is what it is then. This is what Satan is doing in lives. And you say, well, will we see such possession like this? My... My uh, belief on this is that maybe prior to the second coming of Christ, we may see yet again this kind of demon possession. And we have no idea where we are, do we, on that? We do not know day or hour. Uh, the Revelation talks about a loosening. Two Thessalonians talks about a great satanic deception coming in the days of the Antichrist. We may see physical manifestations of this, but believe, beloved, this is true of us, of our world, of our culture now. Isn't this terrifying? People don't realise this, but it doesn't make it any less true. Proverbs 4 verse 19 says, The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. There are doctrines of demons we've read of recently in our Bible studies, permeating our societies. What I want you to see then is, if we bring this together, what is Satan doing to the souls of men and women, and what is he seeking to do to the Christians while he can? Pollute us in the sight of God, dehumanize us and rob us of our created glory, control us and bring us into slavery with sinful passions, shame us by making us unfit, naked and exposed before God, and ultimately destroy us in the sight of God. Satan is against God, and so he is against everything that is made by God. As Jesus said, the devil has been a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. So why do you think you have so many problems, Christian? Because we have been saved from this present evil age. This is the last days, beloved. To say evil is not real is like saying air is not real. To say the devil does not exist is like denying that matter exists. Where there is uncleanness, there is the devil. Where there is temptation, there is the devil. Beloved, I would ask you, why is it our Lord, in his Lord's Prayer, when they said, teach us to pray, one of the refrains was, he said, in, this is a son of God who knows all reality really well and contended with it in his life. Why would he tell us, as part of our praying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? Because he sees what we're so often blind to. He understands and sees in vivid colour the spiritual forces at work to destroy us. And so he says, you better pray. You better pray. Don't be led into this evil. Think of, you know, I often remind myself of this. I feel like, beloved, I am the most likely person to destroy this church. If the Lord said, lead us not into evil and deliver us from temptation, that is a possibility. If Jesus had to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are not setting your things on the things of God, but on the things of men. If if an apostle of Jesus Christ was capable of thinking in a worldly, sinful and unrighteous way, you and I are all capable of ruining something that God is doing. How many churches have split? How many pastors have been run out of churches? How many elders have fallen out? How much of God's work has been desecrated and destroyed because Christians didn't take this kind of stuff seriously? They just ranted at a member's prayer meeting. Praise God, I've never seen that here. Hallelujah. But let's not presume anything. How many people have just lost their temper, said something flippant, said something impulsive, not realising the forces at work? We might be delivered by Satan, from Satan. We might not be able to be snatched from Satan, but we are still under the influence of Satan whilst we're in this world. And we have sinful nature and sinful passions. 
Jesus said, didn't he, to the disciples when they came across a, an, account, an incident, another example of demon possession that they couldn't cast out. This kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Where are the revival prayer meetings? Where are the believers at the revival prayer meetings? There, is, there doesn't seem to be a real sense of actually what it's going to take to save our children, to save our loved ones, to save our neighbours, to, to work in our community. We are dealing with legions. This kind comes out only by God. What did um, the Apostle Paul say? Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. If we're going to see then satanic strongholds destroyed, the beaches that Satan has made his positions on broken through, we can't fight this battle merely in the flesh. I'm not saying this at this church, but some churches have their mindset, oh, if only we just got a preacher or a pastor, if only we got an elder or a few deacons, then we'd be in a better place. Wrong. They're just men. We need God to be on our side. And Jesus' mission led him right into this spiritual conflict. Do you know, to be on the Lord's side is as dangerous, spiritually speaking, as storming the beaches on D-Day. I don't know if you believe that. We should. There are only two sides in this world. There is no neutral ground. There isn't. I said this in a sermon on a civil magistrate. For too long, Christians have thought that separation of church and state can mean effectively we have the church, they can have the state. We'll obviously try and influence the state, but that's neutral. No, it is not. If light withdraws, something comes in. And we were, we're way past that time of uh, kind of a, a, a negotiated peace between the godless culture and the church. We are now seeing an in- ramping up of hostility. Well, allow me to end on one positive point. You do realise, because people have different beliefs about church and what we should expect when we come to church. Now, we are in a day and age where people view church as their Sunday mood lift for the rest of the week. I don't know that's how you approach church. Well, it's not what we believe in at this church. We believe in preaching the truth verse by verse. And what you've just had described to you is the vivid truth in these verses. But there's something we need to see. We have seen a picture of human wretchedness, but thirdly and lastly, see a vision of astonishing power. A vision of astonishing power. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him and cried out, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. See, we've seen the astonishing power of these demons, but we've seen that when they're confronted with the person of the Son of God, you see how weak and feeble, how pitiful, how useless, how, all, how, how, how terrified they are. See their submission firstly, their submission, verse 6. They, they fall down and worship. That, 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 literally when they saw Jesus, and that word saw, it doesn't just mean they saw him with their human eyes like I'm looking at you. They saw him with a perception. Oh, because they knew who he was. Who do you think cast them out of heaven in Genesis 1? Wherever you place that rebellion, theologians differ. I place it somewhere between God making the heavens and the earth and prior to the fall. But, but who did that? The Son of God, the Word of God. So they, they, they are terrified. They suddenly, it's him! It's him who cast us out of heaven. And it's him whom we've had to go before and beg permission, like in Job's day, to do anything. And they have read the scriptures. They know the scriptures. The devil believes in God, beloved. He understands. And all, the devil is thoroughly reformed. He's a reformed Baptist. He's orthodox. He knows the truth. Um, the devil... What am I saying? The devil believes what the Jews believed. 
the devil believed that Christ's appearing would be their destruction. Hence why in Luke's and Matthew's account, they say a bit more than is here, do not torment me before the time. They are panicking and shrieking because they literally believe Jesus is going to plunge them into the abyss itself and torment them for never, ever and ever without any remission and no chance of repentance. Not that they would ever repent anyway. Now this word worship here doesn't mean that they loved him or that they repented. It, it doesn't, it's not a worship of adoration. This is a submission of an inferior to a sovereign. I want you to know, however terrifying the devils are, and however sobered we need to be by them, they are absolutely terrified of your friend, of your captain, of your elder brother, of your good shepherd. Your protector makes them quake. The one who has his eyes upon you all times and will never leave you nor forsake you. The one who walks with you into Eastbourne Town Centre. That one terrifies them. Just think about that for a moment. 6,000 potentially or more demonic forces, beings, bowing before one being. Son of God. Just as an aside, here is a, I've never thought about this. I'm, this has just come to me in a moment. Here is a rebuttal for the JWs and the Mormons who say Jesus is not God. If he's merely a, an angel or an archangel or a higher angel or something, why would you have 6,000 other angels bowing down to him? Here is one they are scared of who has the power to torment them. Notice they emphasize, do not torment us. They believe it is the Son of God who will do the tormenting. Here you have those who should terrify us prostrate before the Son of God who loves us and gave himself. For us. So there's submission. There's also panic and despair. That word cried out literally means they shrieked. This is despairing panic. They are literally quaking before the holiness of the Son of God. Do not torment us before the time. They are perfectly orthodox in their understanding of the future. Interestingly, if you're, not, if you're a not believer here and you don't believe in the judgment day and if you don't believe in Christ, you will go to hell. See, the demons believe that. The demons believe what they persuade you not to believe because they know that there's hope for you if you suddenly realise this because you could flee to the Lamb of God who takes away sin. But they don't have such a comfort, so they're just deceiving you to lead you with them into such a destruction. See how helpless they are, verse 8. Jesus is literally, the Greek is ongoing, present tense, be coming out. He's calling them out of the man, unclean spirits. The word of Christ is exposing their utter helplessness. That same word that controlled nature now controls the forces of hell. Satan can do nothing to stop stop it. Did you see... Some of the Christians today, our Christian brothers and sisters, are bogged down on sort of casting out demons and mantras. There is no power in us merely saying, come out. We're not the son of God. And in fact, there were Jewish exorcists in Paul's day which tried to do that. And they said, we know who Christ is. We know who Paul is. In other words, they're apostles of Christ. Who are you? And they made the situation worse. The power to set free is in the word of Christ. What we do is speak the word of Christ to people. I remember being on the street once in London, and this woman was unusual. But she was f- relatively um, friendly. And then I mentioned the name of Christ, and the truth shall set you free. And she went absolutely berserk and ran. It is the power of the word of Christ that the de- makes the demons tremble it was the word of christ in the temptation period for christ in the wilderness wasn't it that made the devil flee when we're tempted only the word of christ can can rebuttal there's no strength in us it's all in christ isn't it but do you see how helpless they are they can't stop the word of christ from breaking their control over this man it's encaptured in martin luther's hymn though this world with devils filled should threaten to devour us. We will not fear, for God has willed that naught shall overpower us. The ruler of this age may clothe himself with rage. To us, he'll do no harm. God has pronounced his doom. The merest word can fell him. 
Time and time again, Satan has undone himself. They thought that in destroying this man, they could harm what Christ was doing. It only became an occasion to show the glory of Christ in setting this man free. They thought that by uh, whipping up the crowds and whipping up Pilate and whipping up everyone to conspire against the Son of God, they thought they could once for all crush the Messiah. In so doing, he was crushing his head. They can't win. They thought that by burning Tyndale at the stake, they could stop the spread of God's word. But God's word only spread more ferociously, more quickly. And what did Tyndale say? Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And the queen who came from the king enabled the Reformation to carry on at full momentum and force. He can't, he, he can't win. And what confidence this should give us as we serve Christ. Jesus won the victory. His word removes the blindness, renews the mind. Do not fear the devil. What I mean by that is, fear the devil in the sense that you won't be naive. Fear him to that extent. Don't be flippant, don't be stupid, don't dabble in dangerous things, don't put temptation in your path, don't carry fire close to your chest, don't give him anything to set the match to and light. Fear him in that way. But don't fear him so as to live terrified of him. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Are you a believer? Are you submitting to Christ? What a shock it will be for those who do not know Christ and have not responded to the word of Christ. I'm going to close with some very sobering verses in Revelation. We read the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, Every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves in the rocks of the mountains. Why? That's what the demons are doing in our passage this morning. But now it's the people doing it. Why? Fallen us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? I ask you, if there's only one here or one streaming in, are you mightier than the devils? If the devils trembled before the Son of God, what makes you think that you can withstand his judgment and avoid it? If you're not in Christ, if you have not his righteousness, if his blood has not been applied to your soul and to cleanse you, and if you've not bowed before the cross and said, save me, if you've not trusted in his redemption, you are alone, naked, exposed, unclean before a holy God flee to Christ come to Christ and be saved let's pray